Hey everyone, welcome back to Here in Apologetics. I am so pumped you're joining us today. Today I have Dr. Charles Taliaferro. He's a professor emeritus of philosophy and emeritus Oscar and Gertrude Bow Overby Distinguished Professor over at St. Olaf College. Uh, Dr. Charles Taliaferro, Charles, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. It's good to see you, Zach. It's good to see you too. Remind me one more time, how do I say your last name? Because it's something we should have reviewed before we just got rolling here because I feel like Taliaferro is like definitely wrong. Uh, well, if we were in Europe or South America, the, I do go by Taliaferro, but mm -hmm. in the United States, I go by Tolliver. So okay. it, it rhymes with Oliver and it's a, a Virginia family. So, um, but Charles works, you know, so. Okay. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> um, well today we're going to be talking about like the theology of space. Um, like why is space so big? Why should Christians care about space? How do you make sense of it? It's like a new heavens and a new earth, all this stuff. Um, so Charles, like to get started, you've been on the show before. Do you want to just give like a brief little intro in case people need a refresher on like who you are and what you do? Yeah, well, as Zach said, I'm um, with St. Olaf College, which is here in Minnesota. And I've also taught at the University of Massachusetts in Notre Dame before that. But I've been working in philosophy of religion um, my whole professional life, philosophy of mind and uh, ethics also. So, um, yeah, and I've written or edited a total or co-authored about 40 books. And the most recent, and you can find these on Amazon, uh, is uh, on Christian philosophy. And I have three audiobooks that you could check out. Read by uh, female actors who are from Australia who are on the show Homicide. Uh, so I have a philosophy of religion, a beginner's guide, and an aesthetics books, and also a brief history of the soul that you can get on um, audio. Yeah, that's so cool. Um, and I didn't realize that the audiobooks were read by like actors and whatnot. So that's, that's super cool. <laughs> um, actors, actresses. Uh, let's talk about like the idea of space. So when we're talking about space, Charles, what are we talking about here? Uh, it sounds like a cliche, but I'll start by saying good question. And the, <laughs> the history of space is actually fascinating. And uh, from the get-go, let's say early Greek philosophy, also I think in Indian philosophy and in the Bhagavad Gita, early Chinese reflection, um, there's not a great deal of attention to space per se, but obviously to spatial objects. And for the Greeks, they're looking for the ousios, the, the essence of what it is to be physical. And it's been speculated that actually this um, early Greek thought, which took place in what's modern-day Turkey, but there was Greek colonies, was uh, due to a... Um, a crisis in trade about minerals. And so they wanted to, what is the basic factor of physical spatial objects? Could there be just one thing? And that almost anticipates subatomic particles, you know, particle physics that does posit, you know, this um, almost, you know, um, like violent, but um, extraordinary, um, you know, electricity that produces what we uh, encounter. But space itself 
really um, became a concern in the, the 1600s in England. And that's what I've been spending the summer working on. Um, this is the age of Isaac Newton. Interestingly enough, Newton, a household name, but he was very influenced by a, a theologian, Henry Moore, a Christian, um, Anglican um, philosopher, theologian, who was um, very concerned about the omnipresence of God. Where is God? And uh, traditionally, Christians from the medievals on have understood God to be present everywhere in terms of power. God is present in Virginia and in Pennsylvania and Europe and here by virtue of sustaining all these places in Alpha Centaurus, all objects uh, are created and conserved in existence by an omniscient God. So God knows you, where you are, knows where everything as it were, is. And uh, also some of, of these early thinkers thought of God's presence as also manifested in terms of God's moral properties of the loving creator and redeemer of the cosmos. But um, Moore was disturbed by um, where is God, uh, is God more, um, more um, here, uh, than there, or is there more God in um, on an island than in a, a room? And what he came to um, posit was that space itself exists. And it's odd, but really uh, there are hints of it in Plato, but, um, and we now commonly think about outer space, and we think of spatial objects, but we rarely think of space as itself being a thing. And so what happened in the 1600s is that uh, people started thinking about space as a substantial container in which there are spatial objects. And this had a religious dimension for Moore, as well as Isaac Newton and Samuel Clark, whereas they started to think of space as an attribute of God. Uh, they weren't pantheists. They didn't believe that God is, um, you know, identical with the cosmos, but that space, and here we're not talking about, yeah, again, spatial objects, but space as the container in which there are spatial objects as a kind of shadow or reflection or attribute of the divine. So on this view, we actually are literally moving in not in God's essence, God's self, but in an emanation or a reflection of God. Um, and I'm very uh, deeply attracted to this. Let me just say a little bit more about space um, itself. Uh, people were led to believe in space on the grounds that, um, well, I'll give one example. When you say that uh, there are two hands, my hands are touching. We say that there's no space in between our hands. Now, let's look at ourselves and um, the moon, 230,000 miles, whatever it is from here. And there's, if there's no space between us and the moon, 
we're actually touching the moon. So what is between us and the moon? Space. And um, space, according to Newton and Moore and Clark, uh, gives us a way of understanding motion. And this, of course, becomes heavily edited under Einstein and theory of general and special relativity and so on. But actually, the theories of relativity and the like are compatible with space being a um, the container in which you have uh, what Einstein would refer to as space-time, largely based on functional definitions of having to do with the speed of light and so on. But just one more uh, run-on sentence. The, the competing view at the time of Newton in the 1600s was called the relational theory of space. And that was that space doesn't really exist. It's an abstract object. It's a entia rationis. It's a thing of reason. But uh, spatial objects exist. So this was associated with Leibniz, a Christian philosopher, but he thought that Space, there's spatial objects, but no space. Um, Newton and others and more thought that actually you wouldn't have spatial objects without there being some place or container or place where there would these objects would be. One way to get at, at this mentally is what would exist if you took away um, the spatial objects around you, the Earth, our solar system, the galaxy, everything but my glasses, what would exist? Well, you know, the glasses would still exist. Now, when we take away the glasses, what would there be? Well, on the absolute view of space, there would still be space. And um, I myself am drawn to this, and it does give one a... Um, a very vivid understanding of how God is proximate to us through power, conservation, knowledge, sustaining us in being. But also there's a sense in which um, we are contained within God. Now, this attribute, you can't smell it or see it or taste it. Um, it doesn't have texture. It's, um, in, the, in that way, it is a kind of abstraction. But there are, we are moving through space all the time. And so the, it's, a, it's a kind of vivid way of understanding God's omnipresence, that God is everywhere, not just through power and knowledge, but through extension. Okay, this is very helpful. And I think it's interesting because like, I don't know what I'm going to title this video yet. But like, if you include space in it, like the first thought that comes to my mind, and I'm sure many others is we're thinking of like, outer space and like aliens and like all this stuff. Um, but like, what, what you're really trying to help us like think about is like, just thinking about the idea of like, there's being space even between like me and like my laptop screen, which is about like, maybe a foot in front of my face right now. Um, and trying to picture that and then thinking about, okay, well, in the air, there's all these like molecules like H2O, like, uh, or maybe not water. Sorry, I, I haven't done chemistry in a really long time. Uh, but there's all these like different particles that are in between me and my computer and thinking about like, well, if we strip those away, what's left? 
Um, and yeah, it's just kind of interesting, like to think about like, what is this idea of space? Um, and like in like the absolutist view, which it seems like you kind of are leaning towards Charles, you're kind of saying like, there is this like real like space that's like in between say me and my laptop screen right now. Um, that is like devoid of like particles and everything like that. And in some sense, that's going to like, uh, I don't want to say reflect, but like emulate like the presence of like the omnipresence of God. Is that kind of the big picture of what we're getting at right now? That's correct. Yeah, we do think of, you're, you're right. We think normally of outer space and we think of space travel, but um, actually we are in space right now. I mean, the, Newton and others distinguish between terrestrial space, space tied to the earth, and celestial space of the stars. And I, I'm, I must say, pet peeve for me is um, I'm not really keen on the word astronaut. This is really strange. But um, astronaut actually, I think, should be um, the word astronaut comes from the word astro, which means star. And not is from nautilus, meaning sailing. So an astronaut is actually should be translated, I think, as a star sailor. And so the astronaut sails among the stars uh, and in space, but we are actually in space. You're doing a space walk right now when you get up from your chair. That's a space walk. And um, the ubiquity of space um, as, as a boundless container. Uh, is something that we can conceive of as a reflection of the divine, not as God self, as in um, there's more oxygen in this room than there is in the city of Minneapolis. That's not sort of God is not a, doesn't have a height, weight, and width, it, except perhaps in a moral sense. God is um, peerless or, or without boundaries in terms of, um, love and power and knowledge, but but in terms of um, a, an actual reflection of the very being of God, there's a sense in which this can bring home to us God's omnipresent reality. And for Newton, at the time of Newton, this was a, also of great moral and political and cultural significance because um, Europe is gradually discovering, well, the Americas, 1492 and all that, but circumnavigating the globe. And the question comes up for Europeans uh, and near people in the Near East, Far East, is, um, is um, our native, the natives we find in the Americas, are they also creatures of God? And the answer is yes. And as we come to understand other human beings, and perhaps as we come to understand other people and other planets, if there are such beings, um, we come to understand this as carrying um, significance from a God's eye point of view, from the point of view of the very reality of God. And it, it was reflections on, on the presence in space that actually moved so many of the early thinkers my specialty was on English thought at the time, towards the abolitionist movement, towards liberation of the oppressed, towards taking um, Africans, South Americans, Asians, much more fully as creatures of God, image bearers of God who move 
and have their being in God, in a reflection of God, God's, as it were, it's God's space. It's not the crown of Portugal or Spain, Britain, France, Belgium, the Aztecs. It's, um, it's, I hadn't thought of putting it this way, but rather than he's got the whole world in his hands, it's like um, the whole world and the cosmos and the billions of galaxies all exist within the, the very being of God. So we're thinking about this and like we, we have this like big picture idea that God is like omnipresent uh, throughout the world, that he's present like in and everything um, in some sense. And in this view of like space that we're talking about here, where space is like a real like thing that exists, uh, we're thinking that like God is present like in this space. Like when I'm looking like in between like even like me and like my laptop right now, like in some sense, like God is present there. And this isn't like a pantheist view of things. It's just kind of like looking at like the traditional attributes of God and thinking like, well, okay, if God's present everywhere and space exists, um, then it seems like God would have to be present like in space in some sense. And it seems like then like every step we take, like we're stepping into like the presence of God, at least in some way, shape or form. Am I tracking with you? Yeah, you are. And it's the one analogy that um, Moore used was, and this goes back to Augustine, but um, if you think about our relationship with our bodies, um, the, the mind-body or soul-body relationship, is, is that um, I'm sort of with Henry Moore here, that is, I think that we experience ourselves as spatial. We don't always do so, let's say, if we're doing very abstract mathematics or we're reading about Middle Earth, we may be somewhere else in a fictional world. But as we sit um, and chat with each other, you're aware of your body spread out in time. If uh, you stubbed your toe, you would feel pain there. And you would locate it as being there. Uh, even though the, there's a complicated story about um, the uh, central state nervous system and so on. But what these thinkers would propose is that you, as uh, Zach, as a conscious self-aware being, are... Um, fully present to, let's say, well, I, I hate to use this like a pain in the toe a foot or something, but let's go with that. Um, but not the whole of you is present there. So it's, it's this idea that God is um, fully present. We might say in the incarnation, in um, your office, and... Um, the world around us and the Ukraine and Russia, et cetera, et cetera. But it's not the whole of God that is, that is there. So as with Christ, we say fully God, fully human, those of us that are Orthodox Christian, but you wouldn't say it's the whole of God, the whole of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the creator of the whole cosmos is there in the body of this first century Palestinian uh, baby at one point, um, but we'd say that's God in the second person of the Trinity is truly there, incarnate and limited, kenosis, lim, in that body, but it's not the whole of God. So similarly with respect to space um, and the like, God is and can be wholly present to you, 
listeners, viewers, uh, in your prayers, in your reflection, uh, in good times and bad and the like. But not that's not the whole of God because God is also fully present to all persons, um, whether on this planet, Alpha Centaurus, if there are any creatures out there and so on. So this notion of omnipresence is a very rich one. It's It's got a very stern particularity to it um kind of um on a moral point of view god knows your dirty little secrets god is inescapably omnipresent but that also joyfully and thank god is also fully present throughout all of space so it's like that we can have this idea of god being fully present but again, like because of like our doctrine of like omnipresence, like this isn't like a pantheist view of things. So that, that's very helpful. Um, here's a question, Charles, that I'm wondering about. Like if we think about space, space is very big. Um, even like thinking about like the distance between like me and my computer screen right now, I'm just thinking like there's so much space going on. Um, there's so many different like molecules or atoms or whatnot, like floating maybe even uh, between me and my computer screen right now. Um, hopefully the chemistry is right there. I'm not a chemist by any means. Um, but then we stretch it out to a much like grander scale and we think about the whole universe and it's just like, dang, like this is so big. Um, how do we make sense of like all this space from a Christian perspective? That's a great question. Um, I think there's uh, one counterpoint to uh, pose and that was by a book that um, a contemporary of C.S. Lewis's, uh, he wrote called Your God is Too Small. And this is the problem we get to if we think of God as um, owned by, you know, a tribe or just a people's or a person. And, and like, no, God is much bigger, uh, to use a spatial metaphor, uh, than we can we could ask for or imagine. So on the one hand, I think what needs to stretch is our concept of, um, as it were, the, I, won't, I won't say the size of God, but I will say the, the dimensionality of God. And I'm also a believer, not exactly in the multiverse, as that's discussed in contemporary theoretical physics, but I don't accept um, the unity of space. That is, it seems to me there can be spatial objects that are not spatially related to the spatial objects in our physical world. Um, hence, if you wanted to know where is heaven or hell or purgatory or whatever, um, there can be um, spatial regions. In fact, I think there are spatial regions that are not some spatial distance from the realms in our material objects. So. Even even with respect to dreaming and our visual field, when I dreamed last night about a tiger, there was no um, actual little tiger in my brain, cerebral visual cortex. There's no, um, but there was a visual experience in a, in a dream state of a tiger, and I don't think that visual world is an illusion. I think it's it's dreams are real. And I think that those objects 
those visual objects are not some distance from your bed. Um, so I think that as for why is there so much space? Well, um, why is God so <laughs> limitless? And the, the medievals called um, the notion of divine fecundity, that is fruitfulness, the principle of plentitude, which was the thesis that some of them had that virtually all good possibilities are potential, at least objects of divine creativity. Uh, Tolkien believed something like that. He actually hoped that somewhere there is Middle Earth <laughs> with Gandalf and the Gru. Um, that is all these realms could, could have a kind of embodiment, a, a realm, a spatial realm. And so I believe that what needs to expand is our expanding concept of God. And as we expand our concept of the divine as truly uh, limitless and boundless and power and um, goodness, love, wisdom. Um, I think we, we, we begin to almost expect there to be countless stars, countless galaxies, countless forms of life even. Okay. So this is helpful that like when we're thinking about the idea, like, we're thinking that God is like very grand. Um, there's no like, like he's limitless. So the question of like, well, why would God create a universe that's very like big, like from a divine perspective, like this universe isn't really that big. Um, it's only from a human perspective. Maybe you'd say it's big because God is literally limitless. Like he can make a universe like a gajillion times bigger than the one we're in right now. And it would still be, oh, that's a cute little universe. You should see what I can do because I'm limitless. Um, that's just a thought I had when you're, when you're coming up like when you were talking, because it just seems like only maybe I guess from the human perspective, we can say that this universe is in fact like uh, very big and full of space. Yeah, there was a, a lot of reflection from the 1600s um, to the present really on the significance of the size of our planet, of our solar system, of our galaxy. It's been said the Milky Way isn't even that huge compared to other galaxies and the like. But, um, and I remember Carl Sagan from my generation, um, I was born in the 1952 and Carl Sagan was very big and he had a TV series, I think it was called The Blue Spot. And he would show you a picture of the earth from a great deal of distance away and it's, it's actually very, very small. and. Um, people drew different conclusions from this, and one of which was humility. Um, however, um, they didn't need to do that uh, in the sense that I wouldn't say that, personally, I wouldn't say that the earth looks small um, when you get um, 7,000 light years uh, from here or whatever, but it looks distant. Um, I had a, a nephew, I hope he's not watching, but he once, when we were um, walking, we, we had um, lunch in Vermont and we climbed a, a mountain and we looked down and I said, that's where we had lunch. And my nephew said, no, we didn't. Said, what? Because it's too small. Well, okay, it 
<laughs> maybe your hand looks smaller the further it gets away from you, but I'd say it looks more distant uh, in any case. My thought is that, um, as Bertrand Russell said, Einstein was smaller than a hippopotamus. Doesn't mean the hippopotamus has more value than Einstein. So size doesn't necessarily mean value. Um, however, uh, I do think when we contemplate the fecundity, the limitless power of God and God's limitless goodness, we are um, we open ourselves to um, accept and delight in a creation that is similarly uh, uncountably many um, quarks and, and the like that we find increasingly um, objects that are more bizarre than Leviathan would have been to the early Israel Israelites. And so I think we, we should we need to be open to uh, fecundity and and space as not something alien and and it will have said great Christians like Pascal would look into outer space and he would feel this sense of dread and our smallness as a thinking reed, as he would call it, like a reed in the grass, you know, that so fragile is that even even something a microdot of poison can kill us. And indeed, we are fragile and contingent, and this reinforces that. But we are we are also in a cosmos that is created by a being without limit. And it is before this being that became incarnate um, and who calls us to a life of uh, wonder and curiosity, of love and of um, seeking to abide in goodness and to um, purge ourselves from um, sin and evil. So here's the thing I've been thinking about, Charles. One thing you brought up earlier um, is that maybe there's like spatial regions that are like disconnected to like our own realm of reality. Uh, we think about like us and the Milky Way and like the universe and so on. Um, and like, how does it help us make sense of like heaven and hell and whatnot? It's like, well, that's a good question. Um, maybe it'll be helpful. How do you think about like the idea of new creation? Like I think a lot of Christians like it's a very seems like a fundamental part of Christian theology is the idea of like a new heavens and a new earth that this universe is going to be, or this earth is going to be remade in some sense. Um, and then there's like also this idea of new heavens of like, well, what, what does that mean? Um, how does like your ideas surrounding space, Charles, help us make sense of this? Like, can they help at all? Uh, well, I think so. I think, I think scripture is, um, um, indeterminate or neutral that is for those uh, philosophers of space and time just just working with scripture about asking questions like um is space unified or uh, in the resurrection of the body will it actually be this particular body with um, these cells that will become resurrected in the last judgment and the like. I, I see um, I see scripture myself as suggesting or implying or hinting at there being multiple dimensions. When um, Jesus says to the Sadducees, uh, God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and God is not the God of the dead, but of the living, 
that implies Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob exist. They are alive. They're not dead. Their bodies are in their, their tombs, but they have a, um, a, a life. Within the Transfiguration, you have a story of Elijah and Moses as being with Jesus. Again, this Jesus, the belief that Jesus descended into hell on Holy Saturday. All these beliefs imply, um, and also Jesus, the ascension. Now, some Christians may have believed that heaven literally was in the sky in the sky, you know, above the clouds, something like that. There could have been um, those kinds of beliefs. Some may have literally believed hell was beneath us. But these beliefs um, also seem to me to be not the only beliefs in town. That is, you find this hinted at in Daniel and prophetic visions and um, the apocalypse, the gospel of the revelations, these different visions of, you know, whether it's a dragon, this and that, of um, realms in which God is active. And I, I'm i um, of the view that a heaven, while it wouldn't be correct to say it would be, or hell, all around us, um, and that would be to put it actually in our spatiotemporal um, context. Um, but it, it might be all around us in the sense that you're uh, going to heaven, as it were. You, Zach, your soul, uh, could well be an instantaneous matter. Your body remains here. It's no longer you. It's a corpse and, and the like. So you aren't here, where did you go? And there are some who would say, well, you didn't go anywhere, you're disembodied, you're, you have no location whatsoever. But I think it's very natural, and the, the Bible is very earthy in the sense that, uh, perhaps in the sense of being, um, prizing the, um, the tangibility of Jesus as the resurrected Christ and the like. So there can be, in my view, and this helps understand these things, tangible, physio, um, spatio-temporal worlds that are not, again, some distance from here. But that doesn't mean that you might not come to one of those worlds or that um, <coughs> those worlds aren't fully um, present to God. This, one of the Psalms says, if I make my bed in hell, but uh, Psalm 139, uh, you are there. That is the inescapable presence of God is to be found in all realms. So here's a, here's something I'm thinking about right now, Charles. Um, this has been very helpful, and there's a lot that I'm just like, I'm like, wow, this is interesting, something I've never really thought about a lot before. But how did, like, does your picture of, like, souls fit into this idea of space? Because I know that, like, you've defended views where we have this idea of like the soul of like a non-physical mind um, that isn't like reducible to like atomic properties. Um, you can't like point to it maybe with like a, uh, a microscope or whatever. Um, how do souls fit into this like view of space where souls are something that uh, are not physical, but exist? Well, on that front, a uh, great question. Um, I 
I see the soul as having um, an extension, a spatial extension. That is, um, those of us that are healthy, uh, fully em um, embodied, that have proprioception, that is, can tell the location of our limbs without having to observe them. Um, in, a, in a sense, uh, you are there. I'm looking at you. You're fully functioning and as a, as a unity, a, a soul body or embodied soul unity. However, on, on the view that I accept, which goes back to Augustine and Origen and Clement, I think it goes back to St. Paul and the, and the writers of the New Testament. The uh, soul is more than the body, more than molecules and, and the like. So that when your body dies at, at the point of biological annihilation or at least decay, um, that's no longer you. If you are an animalist, as some Christians have been uh, or are today, they are Christian materialists and they would say, that's that's still you. Um, Peter Van der Wagen in Notre Dame, a Christian materialist would say something like that. And um, But for, for myself as a traditional Christian, I would say, no, that is, um, well, Peter Van Wagen said, I fear that someday I will be rotting flesh. And I think that makes perfect sense if you're a materialist, because if you are the very same thing as these flesh and bones, when they rot, you are rotting. For those of us that are traditional Christians, um, we believe that the body to be sacred, and one of the early signs of uh, Christian um, charisma or attractiveness was that they cared for um, the remains of persons. You weren't just um, put on a heap of dung or something. No, 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 this is possible, this is reverent. But for those of us who believe in the soul, you are more than a soul, and so um, as C.S. Lewis once said, maybe with a little bravado, when he was asked about the atomic bomb, he said, well, the atomic bomb might destroy my body and life as we know it, thermonuclear death, but I am an immortal soul. Now, that might be a little, a little too much, kind of like uh, posters in the 1960s when hallucinogens were pretty popular and said, when you... When the bomb goes off, be higher than the bomb. Well, you're not going to be higher on an LSD than the bomb. Your body is going to blow up. But um, there's a sense in which those of us who believe in the soul think that this this life is the beginning of a um, per perhaps um, you know a life with the indestructible love of a God that would be continuous and dynamic and individual for eternity and an anti-boring eternity, being in a relationship with a supremely perfect, um, loving creator. Mm, that's super helpful. Charles, um, anything else you want to say, Charles, about like uh, God, space, things like that? Um, I've learned a lot today, and I'm like, just like, wow, there's a lot of interesting thoughts. Any other, like, anything else you want to address here before we start to wrap up? Uh, well... I'll say something kind of odd is it's sometimes the things that are right in front of you or that are um, 
obvious on reflection that should be sometimes the most extraordinary object of wonder. The fact that you're thinking, feeling, experiencing is wondrous. Uh, it, it's extraordinary that we exist. This is, we are contingent beings. There's no two plus two equals Zach and Charles. Uh, there's no mathematical necessity of our even taking our next breath. So sometimes, even if it's just the realization of one's own being and continuation in being, and sometimes it's just reflection on what is space that can be awesome. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think there is like a beauty to like the wonder. Uh, it's so easy to get caught up, at least for me, just like in my normal life of like what I'm doing. And like, I love doing conversations like this because it helps me like recapture that wonder of like, well, what is space? Like, what does it mean for me just to be here and like think, feel all this stuff? Um, pretty found, profound world that we live in, nonetheless, that like we actually exist in it. So thank you so much for coming on today, Charles. I really appreciate you and your time and everything you do. I always enjoy talking with you. It's, it's, it's a blast. And you always have some very interesting things to think about. Uh, uh, you're great. And uh, let's be in touch, Zach. Okay. Okay, for sure. Um, thank you, everyone, for listening to Here in Apologetics. Uh, I'll leave a link down below where you can uh, follow and connect with Charles. Um, and that's that. If you value what we do, please consider becoming a patron. You can do that at patreon.com. So uh, you can support for as little as a dollar a month, and that support would be huge. Um, but one last time, Charles, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate you and your time. Um, as we wrap up, like any like projects or things you're working on in the future that people can look forward to? I'm struggling with an entry on mind and consciousness for the St. Andrew's Encyclopedia of Theology. That's a, a free and online encyclopedia. I, I have one on naturalism um, and theology, but um, in two months, stay tuned, St. Andrew's Encyclopedia of Theology, mind and consciousness. Stay tuned. Yeah, that's so cool. Um, I encourage people to check that out. And Charles, one last time, thank you so much for coming on. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you back on the show. Okay, thank you, Zach. Take care. Yeah, have a good one, everyone, and God bless. We'll catch you later. Okay.